Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. Winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they've taken their expertise on the road as the full-time family, where they inspire, coach, and lead people to create their unique, deliberate family life using a simplified three-step process. Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show. Join us for twice-weekly episodes. Each week, Nat and Sarah will teach us how to deliberately create results in all areas of life using their unique three-step process. Not only that, they'll also sit down with some of their favorite high achievers who have manifested what most merely dream about. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with a Zenpreneur, bringing balance and lightness to all aspects of our lives, including business. Starting out as an Olympic hopeful gymnast, earning a BA in anthropology, to a thriving massage therapy business, to yoga teacher, and now top earning network marketer. This stay-at-home dog mom, never heard that before, um, she has been dancing and laughing her way through life over the past five years. We met as doppelgangers when everyone in our shared company kept thinking we were the same person. Super lucky for me that I became a Zen yogi overnight. But bringing light and love to helping women develop financial independence in their lives, it's her practice of laps, laughter amidst challenge that draws me to want to share her with you all. So Jen, welcome to our growing community of dreamers turned planners. Now, Ooh. I can't wait to bring some of your alchemy to this whole process of manifestation. So welcome and thank you. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It's so great to be here. I'm honored you've asked me to be on huh. your show. <laughs> well, the minute, like... What everyone doesn't know is the minute your face came on my screen, it was like, yes, that is the, the remembrance, you know, the, the doppelganger that I feel really honored. We're the same <laughs> person. So that, that works for me too, you know. <laughs> you're awesome. If only my hair would curl like yours. But <laughs> uh, look, I, it's funny because we have this moment in time that we shared a real intimacy. And then as I was preparing to chat to you more, I was like, don't know a lot about your past. So have you actually always laughed your way through life or, you know, can you just share a little bit about the heartache of what it was like to, you know, fall at Olympic trials or, you know, you're so young and impressionable, you know, what was that like? Mm -hmm. And the answer, the quick answer is no, <laughs> <laughs> not. Okay. No, laughter definitely grew into my life organically over many, many years. And I even remember a time when I was young when 
laughing didn't come to me naturally and it felt forced and fake all the time. And it's probably just because I was going through a lot as a young person and being a gymnast, life was serious. Life was a job. I, I was put to work from age four with the dream of becoming an Olympian. And by six, I was being groomed. And I didn't know any different. That's just how I was brought up. So I think it was right, like became a part of my being and who I was, was to be serious and to be a workhorse, to just constantly be on task. And I drank, ate, slept, breathed gymnastics all the time. Um, and I didn't know anything else. And so I think even by missing the Olympics, it was devastating. I think devastating is even probably even not enough of a strong word because I had spent my entire life, what it felt like to me from age, well, four or six to 17, focused on this one dream. And when it didn't materialize, I was shocked, didn't know what to do next, why it didn't materialize and what was all that for? <laughs> what was all that determination and sacrifice and pain and hurt for when I didn't even get to call myself an Olympian in the end? Wow. And I think this is one of the things that you and I really connected on when I met you, Sarah, was that idea of almost making it and that devastation that that really ensued for me after that. And yeah, it was definite heartache. I felt defeated. I felt like a failure. Um, I felt like my childhood had been robbed from me. <laughs> I was right. resentful and angry and blaming my parents, blaming my coaches, yeah. um, and really fell into a, a place of loss and grief. Yeah. I really had to grieve. I kind of felt like I had this loss of identity. I didn't know who I was anymore. Um, Cause I've really identified with being a gymnast. I didn't do gymnastics. I was a gymnast. <laughs> there was a difference. And all of a sudden that in a second, it was taken away and I no longer knew who I was and why I was on this planet and what, what was next. So lots of grieving. And how at 17, when that's going on, how do you take a next step? Is it out of desperation? Is it survival? What is that? What do you even do next? Well, I, yeah, I think there was, there was a long period of darkness, <laughs> long period of darkness. And, you know, being 17, you do as a 17 year old does. And I'd never had a life until I was 17. I was never allowed to go to school dances. I was never allowed to have a boyfriend. I was never allowed to wear makeup. Like we were isolated. And oh, so all of a sudden that life is gone. And then I could step into the real life of a, of a teenager, but I was playing catch up because I didn't have those formative years to really learn how to have a social life and be a teenager. So I made a lot of mistakes and what felt like I was behind and playing catch up a lot. So I fell down a lot, even more after finishing my career in gymnastics. And it, um, the one thing I remember thinking, and well, now when I reflect back, I think the one thing I really relied on was as a gymnast, you're always taught when you fall, you get back up and you keep going. That's the one thing that I, if I was to say there was one thing I took away from being a gymnast, it's that. You That's fall. Great. I didn't even hurts. It sucks, but you just get back up and you suck it up and you keep going. No pain, no gain was definitely the philosophy of the time, right? right. Um, and so I just knew you got to take the hurt. You got to take, take 
the fall and dust yourself off and keep going. So that's what I did. I just kept falling and getting up and keep going. Fall, yeah. keep going. It explains a lot about, you know, knowing what you did, some of the things you did next and the resilience that you bring. And, and like, I'm curious, you know, like you said, your parents, if you're four and six years old, these are really early years, but do you remember having a dream for yourself as a little girl? Do you remember what the dream was now? Was it Olympic or was it like standing on a podium? Like what was it exactly that you were dreaming about as a little girl? Well, I think I just remember like even when I was, I was probably four or five and I was going to the local high school gymnastics program, which wasn't really anything special, but they pulled me out recognizing something different in me. And I remember thinking, oh, well, if they see it, it must be in there. <laughs> and it almost breathed this belief into me right from the start of, wow, I'm destined for greatness. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I really held on to that and for some reason was determined for many years. Um, really passionate about the sport. Even when I wasn't at the gym training, I, my dad built me a beam in the backyard. My swing set, eventually the swings came off and it was just a high bar <laughs> in the backyard. Like I couldn't stop. I loved it. I was yeah, so wow. passionate and committed. Um, and I remember like not doing well in school because I couldn't focus in school because I'd rather be at the gym. <laughs> so I think my, I adopted the dream. I think they breathed that belief into me that it, that it was absolutely possible to become an Olympian. And I hung on to that and fought for it. I definitely fought for it. There was a turning point probably in my early teens that I started to wonder if it was possible and the belief started to to drift off. And obviously as you become a preteen and a teen, you know, it's really enticing to want to go and hang out with your friends and have a real life. Um, and, but I, it, there was a time where I actually took a year off um, and took a break. And I think that's when things switched, when it stopped being my parents' dream and it became my dream even right. more. So you chose to go back after that I year. chose to go back and you know, it got harder and harder the older I got, especially in high school. It's really difficult. Like I wasn't going to school full time. I was only at school maybe three hours a week. And then I was leaving to go in tra- or three hours a day, sorry, okay. and going to train. And so um, it was, it was hard. And so there were times when I wouldn't, wouldn't want to continue, but that's when my parents or my coach would just keep encouraging me to go. And, you know, once the Olympics rolled around, it was uh, honestly had, kind of lost the passion and the fire. I believe I was burnt out by that point. And so um, I think that's where the blame really came in in the end when you know, even Olympic trials was a four day competition. And after the first two days, I told my coach, I'm done. I'm not going back for the second two days. I'm, I'm over it. <laughs> and I remember her sitting me down and there were a ton of tears and a toilet paper roll gone of <laughs> tissues. But she talked me into competing the second two days and I competed so much better the second two days that I did the first two. I kind of wish I had that fire the first two days and maybe I would have made the Olympics, but wow. it, had, it was a journey. It was such a roller coaster of, of emotion and I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. But at the same time, even when I was little, little, like it was what I wanted to do. That's where I was headed. <laughs> and when you talked about this flame, you know, almost this, that it burnt out and I never kind of, 
you know, nowadays we talk a lot about burnout. People in the workplace are burnt out, but I never really thought about it in terms of the flame, the dream, you know? So how have you found your flame again? How did, how did that come back? Hmm, that's a great question. Yeah, I never thought of that. Those, that's ridiculous that I never put that together, burnout and <laughs> flame, but... You mean in that moment, like when I was 16? No, no, like because you had a flame burning for so long. What? Find something that you loved again. Yeah, it's about passion and the passion and the purpose, right? Those are two, two things that I now strongly believe and teach that are imperative for never giving up. You've got to have the passion, got to feel that you're on purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I ended up finding again. So even staying in sport, like I translated or, or in university, I started um, other sports. So at that point it was just running and weight training, but then I found triathlons. Once I learned how to swim, I dove into triathlon. And then I think I just, I was just like, oh, I really love to race and poured everything into racing through my late 20s, early, well, early 30s. So I was, became a triathlete. And um, so I think it was just finding another place to, to pour that energy into and knowing that when I was fueled by passion, my flame could keep burning. Great. And so I got it. So that's pretty cool. So you were able to put that dedication, that resilience into another sport. And then, you know, having, was it massage therapy that came next? Was that sort of the next um, business wise? Is that what came next for you? Well, I think in terms of my career, um, you know, even though my gymnastics was, um, you know, initially I thought it was the worst part of my life, <laughs> but I, I really sifted and sorted and made an effort to go and find the gifts from the pain and the disappointment um, and that is where the strength came from and my resilience that came from. And I believe that that's when I started my career in massage therapy, those were the skills that I put into practice. Um, you know, just knowing how to time block, how to dedicate my time to study. Um, um, and, and even just having that flame or that passion to wanting to be the best that I could be at at whatever I choose to do. Right. So I think I put that into my career as, oh, if I'm going to be a massage therapist, I want to be the best massage therapist that I can be. I'm not just going to fluff around here and yeah. go and work in a spa. Like I want to be a sports therapist and like be in sports injury rehab and give back to athletes because that's where I grew up was in the physiotherapy clinic. Always. Right. <laughs> so you're so like, I, I know this well. <laughs> I know how that feels. I've done that. So I think um, it was a, also a space of, of contribution. You know, I became a massage therapist because I knew I could help other athletes that were suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just an outlet for me to give back. And so that also is something I was very passionate about and dedicated to was, was being able to learn how to support other athletes so they could perform their best. And was becoming a yoga teacher an extension of that, of becoming better at what you do? Or was it a total... Um, pivot? Yoga was actually a personal um, 
a personal journey. So it was more of, I was going through another tough time in life and needed an outlet for my own personal growth. And when I did my yoga teacher training, it was a month in Bali and I was living in Perth, Australia at the time. So it was really close by. And I thought, you know what? I need to take a break from my life. I'm going to go and spend a month in an intensive yoga teacher training for me. I never thought I would become a yoga teacher because I never believed that I had um, the ability to be a leader or a speaker or to stand in front of people. Like that was a massive fear for me. So I never thought I would teach but I did definitely go into that for my own personal transformation and self-discovery. And it was through yoga where I learned a, more of an awareness of my thought patterns, my negative beliefs, um, and a lot of the things that I was carrying with me as little Jenny gymnasts that were still in there, that were still showing up in my life, that were holding me back or self-destructive. And so it was yoga that, that really brought that self-awareness in, into my life, really. So oh. I, yeah, teaching just ended up becoming, oh, I need another income. I might as well teach yoga. <laughs> I never yeah, thought I got it. it. Yeah. Hearing you say Jenny Gymnast is so interesting because I'm, I'm like, oh, I don't even know that person. You know, you said it and there was like a whole entity there. And I was like, whoa, I, I hear you. Um, so you know, I was very impacted. I'm so glad you did yoga that you decided to rise up and teach because when you taught a group of us laughing meditation, um, you know, years ago, I'm so curious, firstly, before I get into the impact, but what's your philosophy behind laughter? Why did you teach that to us? Well, honestly, it's laughter yoga is was something that I was offered to teach once and I, I just took it on. I thought, yeah, I could do that. And honestly, it was my friend Coco Bouchard, Courtney, who taught me how to teach laughter yoga. And I, okay. I literally went down to her house, sat in her living room for a couple hours and she, she had done the yoga teacher training for laughter yoga. And she's just like, this is what you do. And I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> Even though I really didn't think I could, but the whole process, of laughter yoga, me becoming a teacher for laughter yoga was a process in itself in that you have to go first, right? Laughter yoga is one of those spaces where you have to stand up in front of people and model what, what you expect of them. And it's sure. not easy. Um, but I think in that process, it reminded me of laughter yoga is so powerful because of that message that motion creates emotion. Okay. So motion creates emotion. So, I mean, there's a lot more research on that now. Tony Robbins used to teach it, but it, there's a ton more research on, on um, changing our, our movements to create physiology rather than the other way around. So even the simple act of a gentle smile will release endorphins into your body that will make you happier, those happy mm -hmm. endorphins. So laughter yoga is really designed on moving your body in ways that will elicit chemical reactions in your body and those endorphins to make you feel happier. So it's really about faking laughter until it becomes real contagious laughter. And in the process, the only yogic part of it really is breathing, but there's exercises that we do that fake laughter, like initiating the words ho, ha, and he, 
right? And, and there's clapping, so the, the clapping is stimulating our hands and some of the nerve endings um, and the breathing and the movements of our body. It's the motion that's creating the emotion in laughter yoga. And the other part, after teaching it to large groups of, of like I've taught it to a group of 120, I think is the group, largest group I've taught it to, watching people initially, they're terrified to, because um, it's, it's childlike playfulness, really. Okay, because I, let me tell you what we're terrified, because I was terrified. Okay. And you tell me if this is it. Yes. The, when you were describing that, I was like, what is it about it that I found so hard? And it was the part about faking it. Right. Why? Like the fake laughter was like, I had such resistance of, and, and maybe it's about looking bad. I don't know. What, what is that? Like, I just, as you were describing it, I'm like, it was the faking part that I just was not handling. And I did it. And then I would feel like, I would almost be there for a second and then I'd give up. I, I would kind of like try to hide and like <laughs> copy somebody else. It reminded me of my dancing, to be honest, but it's all the same. It's all the same. So what is that, Jen? Tell us how. Well, you're, like, you're not go. the only one. I've seen oh people leave the room because they couldn't do it. So it's not easy, but once you stick to it and move through it, I think the communitas, the community effort, eventually wins you over and everyone just steps into it. But yes, it's really hard to initiate it because I think it's because you're really encouraged to have this childlike playfulness and we're taught as adults to not be so playful. We've kind of forgotten how to have fun and to be playful and to let go and release and just be goofy and be silly. It's, it's for some reason as adults that becomes hard. So when we do laughter yoga, we're really encouraged to be that silly, goofy, childlike self, which when you tap into that, all of a sudden, the joy starts to bubble up and rise. And you remember what it was like to be a little kid and run around a room and pretend you're an airplane, all right? All those little things that you do when you're little that you probably watch Jordan do. That yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Right? Like spinning around in circles and getting dizzy and falling down and having a good laugh. Well. Why don't we do that as adults? We loved it as children. It's obviously innate and in us. So I think that's what the motion of an adult, so once we get into the movements of it, even though it feels really uncomfortable at first, once you get into it, the emotion comes back because the physiology kicks in and then you remember how good it feels and that's what fuels you to keep going. And then it becomes real and contagious laughter. And then you hear other people in the room who are laughing and that's funny. And then you just get into it, right? And then when it's over, you can't stop. <laughs> and it's, it's true. It's, it's such, it left a lasting impression that I, I still wanted to talk more about it. I'm so glad we are because I'm just, I'm getting more about why I was impacted through talking to you a bit more about it. Because firstly, isn't it interesting that you said you were such a serious kid mm -hmm. and how that came into your life, like giving you this beautiful experience of your childhood again, you know, and maybe reliving it in a way. I, th I thought that was interesting. I never got that. And maybe that was me, you know, there's a sense of like, I was very serious about everything and very committed and dedicated and yeah, that explains a lot about probably that awkwardness because to me in, in being so focused, I was very controlled. 
And I feel that this is like giving up control, like you said, to let go and just be goofy and you're not really sure what's going to happen next. And, um, yeah, yeah so it's cool. Too, like, what are other people going to think of me if I really get into this, right? And then the comparing and the competing game starts and all those things come up in the laughter yoga session, for sure. Are people going to think I'm stupid? Do I look stupid? What do I look like? You know, those are the things that we constantly struggle with in life. And by moving through the laughter yoga, I think, again, it's like the physiology takes over and you kind of get into this flow state and all of a sudden all of that drops away and your mind shuts off and you just get into it physically and you can't control it when you get into uncontrollable <laughs> pee plants laughter you can't stop it right it's and then true. It, it rolls good. it feels so good yeah yeah and like and medicine laughter is medicine <laughs> laughter yeah and it's 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 said a lot and it's what i experienced with you is not being, um, uh, what's the word, like cognition, like not in my head around that idea, but actually experiencing it is totally different than saying laughter is the best medicine or actually yeah. being medicated by it, you know, allowing it to wash over me and let go. And so in your life, if you were <laughs> Jenny, the gymnast, the serious <laughs> one, and now you you laugh so much more, you know, your whole face lights up. How has that impacted your life? Oh, honestly, learning, learning to laugh it sounds so funny, but it kind of is for me. <laughs> um, I think uh, the way I apply it to life now is, is really to find the humor in all things of life. And I've been practicing some Zen Buddhism over the last couple of years. And that's one thing that I really love that comes out of that philosophy is finding the humor um, and the irony in life so that it's no longer so serious. Um, and so it kind of removes that serious Jenny gymnast from my life. And I can really step into, well, what, where's the humor in this situation, right? And let's focus on the solution rather than the problem. And again, it becomes just a new focus. And when you have a new focus and a new perspective on how you see life, then you can have a completely different experience in life. So that's where I guess laughter has really served me um, is, is just not being so serious, not taking myself so seriously. Because one of the things I love to do now is still to learn new sports. So I've, I learned to ski this winter and I'm learning to ride a dirt bike. <laughs> And I love learning new sports because now I allow myself to not be perfect at them and to be able to fall off my dirt bike and have a massive wipeout and laugh rather than beat myself up over it, which Got is it. what I would have done as a gymnast. Um, so again, it's just finding, finding the humor, being playful, um, and knowing that there is irony in every situation and that it doesn't have to bring me down to the deepest, darkest holes. But the other part of, of laughter yoga, I guess, or just this whole philosophy that's really served me is, you know, life is full of ups and downs. And I've, I've gone through the darkness many times. And um, even recently, well, three years ago, a lot of life changes happened. And I went to the darkest of places again. And I think what served me is that idea that I kept just telling myself, won't always be like this, won't always be like this, won't always be like this. And I'd also remembered during the happy times of my life, the things that brought me more joy 
were the things I needed to do when I was in the darker places. So I knew that I just needed to go and move my body. So knowing that motion creates emotion, if I just went to a yoga class or I just went for a walk and did some deep breathing, got out into nature, um, or even just in my living room, some days I just lie on my back and listen to really good music and pull out the Kleenex box if I needed it. But knowing that um, moving my body in certain ways would elicit those physiological changes and I didn't have to use my head to switch myself out of the negativity, that it would come naturally physiologically and knowing that those are the things that i leaned on i continued to go to yoga or i made an effort to go and see friends um, that i knew would lift me up or switch you know help me get out of out of the negative thinking and internal dialogue so i knew i had these practices to lean on in the darkest times that would slowly over time shift me back into a, a more joyful place Thank you for that, because I feel that that is a beautiful, um, concrete help for anyone is not uh, waiting for the emotion to move, but allowing the movement to elicit the emotion, like the order of that is really cool. And just remembering that, yeah, do that anyway. And I know a lot of whether it's yoga or meditating, it's not about waiting to feel like it. That's right. sport, sport was really like that. I have this little theory that athletes who retire or that there's almost like this pathway that's been developed over time, almost, you know, how you're talking about the neurology and the physiology. I almost think we have this response to the neurochemistry. And then when it stops, it's mm. like, that is even more dramatic. It's almost more of a contrast. So I think that that's, I experienced that in a way that I didn't expect. I was like, wow, you know, I really do respond to moving my body. Yeah. I have a big response to that. Yeah. I think everybody does. And, and maybe everybody does, maybe that's just the story the end of it, but it felt like I had a, a pathway that had always been like a highway. And all of a sudden there was like no traffic on it anymore from me, you know? And it was just like, whoa, six hours a day to, you know, maybe 30 minutes is quite different. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I think it's important to pay attention in times of joy when we are feeling really good and happy. What are the things that we're doing that are eliciting the joyfulness? What are we doing that's filling our cup? So that when we do fall into those dark spaces or tragedy happens or we have experienced loss, whatever, that we know what to lean on. We know where to go, what to do. What are those things? I think it is very individual. For some people, it might just be reading a good book or watching a comedy movie or drinking a really nice coffee, right? So um, maybe it isn't moving your body for everybody, but there are joyful acts that we all do. But if we're not aware what those acts are, then we can't call on them when we're going through the difficult times. So I think one of the great practices is just to gain a greater awareness of what are those practices for yourself so that you can call on them in times of need. Yeah, beautiful. It's great. Yeah, because you don't want to be necessarily trying to conjure them during that time because you're probably not going to come up with a great list. Well, you're not, and you're not going to want to do them at those times either. Like I had to drag myself out of the house to go to a yoga class. I was sleeping like 12 hours a day, you know, in those moments, you're just like, it was winter, it was dark and bed was really nice, but 
I would set my alarm and I would go to that same class every single day just to get out of the house and get in there. And yeah, so it's, it's not easy when it, when you're in the dark places, but if you just know that those are the things that will over time shift your energy, just keep doing them. I sat in meditation for like 45 minutes a day when I was going through that dark time. Now I only sit for 15 minutes here and there, but I really leaned on my meditation practice, knowing that over time it would shift me. Yeah. And, and it does. wouldn't always be like this. I kept and you were right. And, right. and you're <laughs> like, you are a powerful um, teacher, coach, trainer to women. You know, you're, you're really about women living their best life and, how do you bring this idea of alchemy to the table with them? Like, is it what you just said? Is there more? What is it that you're able to bring to women that are allowing them to, to shift to the next level? So I'm really loving the idea of alchemy right now because I feel that that's sort of what my whole life has been. So it hasn't been just this straight line of beautiful things. It's been ups and downs and, the biggest lesson now turning 44 in two weeks, I'm realizing in 44 years of life is that I've had to go through the flames in order to come out the other end. Um, and so, you know, we hear about the Phoenix rising and all these other stories of, you know, it, it, it is the pain and it is the suffering that grows the resilience. And if we can come out the other end, more with more love with more compassion with more understanding then we'll just become stronger Mm -hmm. and so i think it's really important for us to understand that the dark times come whether we want them to or not and to have an expectation that they will arrive and probably at a time when we least expect it but to know we need to allow ourselves to go through it so that we can come out the other end stronger Um, and for me it it was finding compassion it was finding understanding and forgiveness forgiveness a big piece Um, and now I'm really excited because I feel like I'm that woman who has come out of the flames with the bucket of water ready to help those women that are still engulfed in the flames (laughs) got it got it my purpose and mission now is to really help um, put out the flames so that you can discover what's underneath. And when the ashes fall away, whatever is no longer with you wasn't meant to stay with you anymore. So it's like a forest fire. The forest fire naturally happens to cleanse the forest so that we can have regrowth. So we need to walk through the flames in order to come out the other end, stronger, healthier, happier, and more resilient. And why this focus on financial independence for women? Like, what is it about that? Like, why is that important to you in terms of, you know, the water bucket on the other side for these women? Because my mom always told me a woman should have her own money. Okay, (laughs) go mom. (laughs) Thanks, mom. And it's so funny. I don't know why that stuck with me. She must have said it a lot. I don't know why. And I recently asked my mom, why did I take that from you? Why did I get this message from you? And she told me that there was a time when she felt that it was probably the safest and most appropriate thing would have been to leave my dad and take my brother um, and I away. But she couldn't afford to. She didn't have the money to leave. So I 
that's why she passed on that message to, to me is to make sure I always had my own money so that if there was a time when I needed to rescue myself, I could. And lo and behold, three years ago, that moment came, right? And I needed to leave a relationship. And the second we decided to end the relationship, I knew I was going to be okay because I had my own income that would more than support my desired lifestyle. And I literally left the next day and rented an apartment and was able to just start again, like right away. And the... Um, the freedom that I felt in that moment and the empowerment that I felt in that moment to know that I would be okay and that I could take after, look after myself was, was the most empowering moment of my life. And so now I am definitely passionate about showing women how to create their own financial independence. Um, not necessarily to, if that situation arises for them, but even just to know that you can take care of yourself financially or you can go out and buy the handbag you love without having to ask to, to go and buy that handbag or whatever it is that you love to do, go and invest in, in yoga or whatever. But to have your own money as a woman is so empowering and to have a way to earn money still while being, you know, the things that women have to be, we have to show up and be mothers. We have to show up and be partners. So we can't always be out of the home at a job. So to really feel empowered that you can have an income that you can generate for yourself to give you that independence and freedom of choice to decide in those moments when you need to make a decision that you can make a decision that's not dependent on your financial position. So then you can go and do what you need to do without worrying about money. Boom. I love that because it's the, what that story that you just described was, I love that you got to choose for the right reason. Meaning so many people are living, um, staying because they can't afford it. It's like the choice is like all muddied. It's all muddled up in the, the financial component. And I thank you for bringing up this idea of without having to ask permission, because I live in a really like permission free relationship. And so I work with a lot of people that say, yeah, I just have to ask if I'm allowed. And I'm like, what? Like I just, something about me can't even, hear that and and I get that for some people there's a lot of respect in that but it's like for some for me that just um evokes something really strong this word allowed and and if money can imprison in any way then take off the shackles girlfriend great yeah. work that you're doing it's <laughs> super powerful and it's like home base for you and you know I think your life is so cool because all the steps that you've taken are almost in response to the, the life you've been given. So laughter in response to seriousness, you know, handing a water bucket in response to being in the flame, like really cool. Thank you for being a contribution to others. It's great. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for this life. Right. Yes. <laughs> Love your work. Thank you for talking to our community, um, giving us, that little insight, just that minor insight into laughter, but more so the insight into joyful spaces. I thought um, that laughter is at the heart of that, but that's a deep, deep message. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate you inviting me to be here with everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the show. 
don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.